Good morning, everyone. Um, I hope you like my super outfit. Uh, we're especially for you. Um, well, I want to spend some time with you this morning looking at uh, those two stories. Um, have you heard them before? There's a significant number of people saying yes. Okay, safe territory then. And you've already seen one acted out, although some of the detail a little extra biblical. That is, they've added to the Bible, despite the warning in Revelation, just saying that. Um, um, What I'd like to do, I'm going to do three things. I want to set this in its context. Luke, um, when he begins his gospel, he says he's taken very careful attention to make sure that what's recorded is accurate. He's, he's worked very hard at putting his gospel together and you can know when you look at the gospel of Luke that nothing is coincidental or accidental. It's very deliberate. So I want to look at where this story fits because I think what leads into it helps us to understand the stories. And then I want to look at two things we can learn about God that come from these stories and then I've got three things to take away. So it's a three-point sermon with six points. Anyway, we'll... Um, Uh, Let me pray, and I'm going to ask God to help us, because we all know these stories pretty well. But if you're like me, um, I I learned quite a few things as I prepared for today, so I hope that you might see something new. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I really do thank you for the chance we have now to be together and to sit under your word. I do ask that I won't get in the way of this. Uh, You'll help me to point people to what Jesus said. And I also pray that the things that might be new to us, you'll help us to understand. And I pray the things we've forgotten, you'll remind us of. Amen. Well, the context is the first one thing that I want us to have a little bit of a look at. Um, If you go back to chapter 13, and you've got Bibles there, if you want to look, you you can go back. But let me just tell you that in chapter 13, what happens, it's a Sabbath. And Jesus is traveling along, and I haven't got the click. Oh, there it is, there. I've got some pictures. Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem and he comes, he's traveling on this road. Now, this is not like the road. This is the road he would have gone on. This is the old road that goes from Jericho up to Jerusalem. This is the only way people traveled um, at the time of Jesus. You can see it's not lush farming land. It's also a place where you'd be surprised, but there are little villages in, in sort of just around bends and you've just come across them still today as it was when Jesus was around. Okay, so Jesus is travelling along this road in this region and he's going up into Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath and he goes along to the synagogue and at the synagogue there's a woman who's been ill for 18 years. 18 years she's been sick. And it says there that on that Sabbath, as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, he sees her and he heals her and she's immediately well. Now, can you imagine if you're related to that woman. She's been a member of your congregation. 18 years, she's been really struggling with illness. 18 years. And in an instant, she's healed. If you were married to her, if you were her her children, or if you were her sister or or close friend, how would you feel if a friend of yours who's been struggling for 18 years is healed immediately? You'd be ecstatic, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be thrilled? Which is really interesting, because if you have a look at verse 14 of chapter 13, the leader of the synagogue was indignant. Indignant, he's angry. He's upset that Jesus has done what he's done. 
And you know why? Because Jesus has broken the rule. Forget that the woman's been sick for 18 years. Jesus has broken the rule on the Sabbath that you don't do any work. And healing is obviously work. He's indignant. Can you believe it? Luke wants us to notice that. Then you go to chapter 14. And you see as chapter 14 begins, it's a Sabbath again. He's gone a week's journey. It's a long way from the bottom to the top um, when you're walking from down in the Valley of Galilee up into Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath again. This time uh, Jesus is dining with some Pharisees. Pharisees are a, are a religious group of a political party. Um, very difficult to say that they're just experts in the law. They were the lawgivers, and that's the way they're described um, in, the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. These are, the Pharisees are more of a political group. It's not a job. You don't go out and apply to be uh, a Pharisee and have it as a job. It's a group you join. But they are, let me tell you, they know the commandments better than anybody. They know the Old Testament really, 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 really well. And here's something else you need to know, because if you've been around church for a while, you probably think the Pharisees, these are the bad guys. If you lived back then, Pharisees were the good guys. If you're going to have a neighbour who's a Pharisee, that's a good neighbour. They live really, really good lives. They know God's rules really well and they stick to them. And they're really nice people. But when Jesus comes across them, he notices that some of them, a lot of them, are so caught up in the rules that they miss what the commandments and the rules are about. So you see here, again, it's the Sabbath, and there's Jesus is this time at a dinner. And at the dinner there's a man, and he's also unwell. He's got dropsy. He's got swelling in his arms and his legs to the point where he often drops things, falls over. He's really sick and Jesus heals him. And what happens again? They're indignant. They're really angry. And he turns to them, he says, you know what, if you had a child or if you had an an animal even that got in trouble on the Sabbath, wouldn't you help them? You would, wouldn't you? Then why are you doing this? You see, Luke is setting it up so that we can see that people can sometimes get, get so caught in their religion and in what they believe, that they miss what they really believe. You see, the commandments of God and the Old Testament speak about God's goodness and compassion, his mercy, his grace. They speak about what God is like. He's holy, he's awesome, he's powerful, but he's wonderful. And the Pharisees have missed it. Not only had they missed it, They didn't like people who pointed out that they were wrong. And Jesus had now done that two Sabbaths in a row. Pointed out that they had got it wrong. But then we come to the end of chapter 14. I want you to look, if you haven't already, have a look at the last phrase of the last verse in chapter 14. It's really interesting. And here I want to introduce you to the work of a man named Robert Stephanus. Ever heard of him? Not many people have, but you'll know his work because he's the man who put the verses and the chapters in the Bibles that you've got. He was a printer. He lived in Paris, Robert Stephanus. I think he was more interested in his printing machine than he was 
in theology because sometimes he put the chapters in really dumb place. And he's done that in chapter 14 and chapter 15. So let me take you to the last phrase of the last verse of chapter 14 and show you what it says. You notice what's happening here? Jesus is speaking and he says, him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around to hear. You see that? Robert Stephanus, if ever I meet him, I'm go- well, that's only if he's in heaven because he's obviously lived in the 1500s, but if, if ever I meet him, I'm going to say, why did you put the chapter break there? Jesus is making the point, if anyone's got ears to hear, let them hear. It was the sinners, the tax collectors, the people who were not nice neighbours, not nice people. They're the ones who were willing to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees, verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those in the political party and those paid to understand the Old Testament, paid, like ministers of religion. The ones who should know, what are they doing? You'd think they'd be listening, wouldn't you? They'd be paying attention? No, look what they're doing. They muttered. It's a funny word, muttered. It only appears a few times in the Bible, and one of the other times, the first time that it appears, it's back in Exodus in the Old Testament. The people have followed Moses. He's delivered them through the Red Sea. They're free. They're no longer slaves. And Moses... He's the one who stood up to Pharaoh. He's the one who led them across the Red Sea. He's the one who's got them into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And you know what happens? They mutter and they grumble about him. Because they're thinking, where's the food? Where's the water? At least when we were back in Egypt as slaves, we had garlic. Now we're over here. What have we got? Nothing. And so they grumble and they mutter and they complain. It's the same word. They grumbled and they complained about Moses because he didn't give them what they want, when they wanted it, and the way they wanted it. And here, the Pharisees, who've been listening to Jesus and following him and watching everything he does, he's not giving them what they want, when they want, in the way they want. He's not the one they want. And they're the ones who hear these stories. So let's, let's look at the stories. There's two things you can learn about God. First thing... In these stories, we learn that God is a God who seeks for the lost. And the second thing, there's great rejoicing in heaven when the lost are found. And these two stories are going to show us that. In chapter 15, we get introduced to a shepherd who has got 99 sheep. And unlike the shepherd we met a little earlier in the service, I want to tell you a bit more about the shepherds back in Jesus' day. Because we think of shepherd and we think nice person uh, involved in, you know, wool husbandry or, you know, raising meat for for eating. But a shepherd 2,000 years ago was actually someone at the bottom of the rung in terms of social standing. They were so out, if we're having a meeting this morning like this in church, a shepherd would not be allowed in because they were unclean. Unclean because, not only because they're out in the fields with the sheep and getting covered in muck and dirt and blood, 
but because they often touch dead things, whether it's a fox or a wolf or a sheep. Often touching. So if you touch dead things, if you get blood on you, if you've got covered in muck, you cannot come into the community. Even today, you see people in the Middle East who are shepherds and they are outside the towns and outside the villages and outside the community. But this shepherd, unlike these, has a flock of 100 sheep. That is mind-boggling in its number. Today, a flock is 10 to 15. A really, 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 really wealthy person might have 40. To have 100, the crowd listening to this would have gone, what? A hundred? And then he says, this shepherd, who is an outcast, has a hundred sheep. What? He loses one. Big deal. I mean, big deal. It's only one sheep out of a hundred. You've got another 99. 1% loss, I could cope with that. Economically speaking, that is an expense that's sustainable. Why would you worry if you lost one? Especially in the wilderness. You saw what it was like. You want to go looking around in that? It's dangerous. There are robbers. There are all sorts of wild animals. And it's not a very nice place. You got 99, go home. Don't worry about it. But this shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes into the wilderness looking for the one that's lost. And when he finds it, look at verse 5. He finds it and what does he do? He's been looking, 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 seeking, finds it and rejoices. There's nobody around, just him. And there is rejoicing. And he takes the sheep and he puts it on his shoulders. Now, we lived for a few years in Brussels and I've got to say that my understanding of this story was shaped a lot by the paintings that we'd seen in museums and art galleries in Europe. We had a friend, actually, who worked in the Louvre and she would explain to me that some of the impressions in the paintings came from the Romantic period of Europe rather than from the factual times in the Middle East. It's a rough place. And the sheep are not little. This shepherd finds the sheep, not in a river, and puts it on his shoulders. I've got a friend, Colin, who's a farmer in South Australia, runs a lot of sheep and wheat. I remember saying to him once about losing a sheep, and he said, if you go and lose it, you go look for it, you get the dogs to find it and bring it back, or you walk it back yourself. I said, so you're not a very good shepherd, then you wouldn't put it on your shoulders. He said, you go and put it on your shoulders. Look at how they, they weigh a lot. You're not going to put one of those on my shoulders. They're very heavy. See what this shepherd does? He puts it on his shoulders and carries it back. And I'm convinced it's because Jesus is saying this burden of the lost is taken by the shepherd. Jesus is going to go to the cross and take our burden and bear it on himself. He's going to take the weight of my sin on himself when he dies on the cross. And I think he's alluding to that here in this story. The shepherd takes his burden and carries it back into the village where everybody's gathered with the other 99 sheep and there is great rejoicing. Where are the party poppers? Ah, you fired them off, haven't you? There is great rejoicing because the lost sheep is found. The shepherd is back. And Jesus finishes this story by saying, so it is in heaven when one sinner repents. God is a God who seeks and there is great rejoicing 
when a sinner repents. Second story is about a woman uh, who loses a coin. Proportionally, her loss is much greater. She's got 10 coins, she loses one. Now, coins in the ancient world were a way of buying and selling things, but mostly not. Most business was done through bartering and exchange. Coins were kept for the times when you'd have to go up to the big city, up to Jerusalem, when you'd have to go to the temple. But suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. This woman goes nuts trying to clean the house to find it. Why does she do that? Well, it could be. It could be. I don't know. This is now, now you're in you know, the bishop's imagination. Um, but what happens here is in the, in the Middle East is a woman wears her dowry as a necklace or as a head uh, uh, piece. So in this photograph, a Bedouin woman, that's her dowry. They're her coins. And what they signify is the value that her husband and his family have given to that marriage. And it's very precious, very, very expensive. To lose one of those would be an insult to the family and a great loss to the, to the woman. It means a lot. Um, not only that, there's another thing that often happened. And that is that a woman wearing the coins of her dowry, if she got bored with her husband and was interested in someone else, would often pull the coin off and slip it to him secretly as a kind of a, I like you. Of course, the husband often didn't notice, but the other women in the village did. Now you can understand why she might be motivated to find that coin, especially light the candle and keep the lamps going overnight to find it. I've got to find this before I go out tomorrow and some of the women notice there's a coin missing. They'll think I've got a bloke on the side. Now, she, she to, why there's so much rejoicing and why she tells the neighbours as soon as she finds it? Maybe. I don't know. The point in the story is she seeks, she does everything she can to find it and when she finds it, there is great rejoicing and Jesus says again, in heaven, when one lost sinner repents, there's great rejoicing. You've heard this before, haven't you? Now I want you to work out what we do with it. There are three things. Here they are. Firstly, there is great rejoicing at repentance. My fear is that when we, in church, we're so used to people repenting because we say it in our prayers, we come together as a church and we go, we repent, we're sorry for what we've done, amen, next hymn, yeah, yeah. pass the plate round, thank you very much, go to morning tea. There's great rejoicing at morning tea, not so much at repenting. That, brothers and sisters, is the opposite of what Jesus is saying. We should rejoice when people repent. We should rejoice when we understand that God's Spirit has worked in our hearts to the point where we see we have broken God's laws and we, need, we deserve punishment. But you know what? He forgives. All we need to do is accept his forgiveness and his mercy. How good is that? And how good when someone sees that because you know when you see that in someone else, God has done that. Wow, that is, that's awesome. Don't be Anglican and sit there going, oh, praise the Lord. No, that's fantastic. Be Anglican and rejoice. The next thing, that's the first, rejoice at repentance. Number two, God is in the business of seeking the lost, and so should we. That's the business we're in. 
Do you realise how lost people are and how dangerous it is when they're lost? Do you pray for them? Do you help them find the way? Do you explain it? My daughter Nicole uh, is now in her 30s and she's a mum. She lives in Stockholm. When she was four, we were on a church camp up in the Blue Mountains, a place called Mount Victoria. And there's great thousands, tens of thousands of hectares of bush. And she kept saying, Dad, can we go for a bushwalk? Can we go for a bushwalk? Can we go for a bushwalk? I said, well, Nicole, we've got Bible study, then morning tea, and then we'll go for a walk, okay? Can we go for a bushwalk now? She's four. Everything's got to happen now. Um, No, we'll do it later. Her friend Grace was also there. Grace is a year younger. She was three. And she was told she could go for a bushwalk as long as she went with someone else. You can't go in the bush by yourself. Very dangerous to go by yourself. So we had our Bible study. We were at morning tea and Belinda and I started looking around for the kids. Where's, where's Nicole? And someone said, we think we saw them wandering off down the end of the oval into the bush. What? Suddenly, you know that feeling when you can't see your kids? Your stomach ends up in your kneecaps. You just It's an awful feeling. And I knew there was a dam at the bottom of the oval. I raced down. I've got to tell you, I got down to that dam so quickly. And I looked at the water, just this mucky brown, couldn't see in it, and my heart sank. And I thought, please, Lord, not in the dam. And then I heard from the top of the ridge, we found them. Well, I tell you what, Usain Bolt had nothing on me. When I got to the top of that ridge, I flew up. And there they were, hand in hand, walking off in completely the wrong direction. Totally lost, with the biggest grin from ear to ear you've ever seen. I said to Nicole, Nicole, you know you weren't meant to go off. And she said, I didn't go by myself, I'm with Grace. And Grace was told, well, you, you know you couldn't go, Grace. We said, I had to go with someone older. Nicole's four. <laughs> totally lost and as happy as could be. Do you realise that there are people you know who are totally lost spiritually and they're as happy as could be? It might be you. It might be you. You're happy. You've got things together. You're walking along the track called life. You may be totally In fact, you are totally lost unless Jesus has found you. Has he found you? And then the third thing, beware of a hard heart. It is so easy to be like the people at the beginning of this story who mutter about this. Rejoicing at repentance? Seeking the lost? Maybe, if you have to, I'll do mission. Hmm. Where are you? Smiling from ear to ear? Hopelessly lost? Muttering? Another mission month, thanks Matt. Or rejoicing? That God seeks the lost, and that was me. And he found me, and when he did... I know that on the day that he found me, the heavens burst into a party. Let me pray. Whether this is an old idea or a new one for you, now is a time for action as we come before God. You might like to consider this prayer. God, I want to confess to you 
that I have rebelled against you in my thinking, my speaking and my actions. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've acted like that. From today onwards, I want to serve Jesus as my Lord to the best of my ability. Please help me to do that. Amen.